As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show, an MLS-centric episode of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and today we're talking overtime winners, praising goalkeepers, questioning some theoretical goal scorers, and pondering if David Goss will ever be able to beat Joe Lowry when it comes to MLS predictions. Joe Lowry, after this round, you're now 10-4 and with your playoff drafting. What kind of offseason overall do you think David Goss needs to be able to compete at a higher level next season? Yeah, well, the temptation is always to sort of start with the head coach, right? Just get rid of mm-hmm. the head coach. That's going to make all the changes you need. Really, it's the the behind-the-scenes decision makers that drive the most important decisions around how how these different units perform. So I, I think when we look at David Goss FC, you want to mm-hmm. go a little bit higher up the food chain and it's figure the, out... Uh, David of, Goss City FC, but yeah, sure. Uh, yes, Real mm-hmm. David Goss City Inter FC SC, <laughs> whatever it is. I think you want to go a little bit higher. Um, so that would be my mm-hmm. encouragement to that club is, is just sort of look one rung above and make some more meaningful systemic changes. But so you think it can, like, they can turn it around in one season, or is this a multi-season sort of thing that will have to happen? I mean, in this league, there is so much parity, right, and maybe parity to a fault. I think it's possible to turn it around quickly, but again, a lot of things have to go right for that to happen and for them to be a contender again next Mm -hmm. year at this level, kind of like the Seattle Sounders, who now have a massive offseason ahead. It's not impossible for them to come back strong. All right, let me interrupt here. Maybe we even expect (laughs) it, but it will need to happen. Let me interrupt here. The underlying numbers are terrible. Regression is strong. This team is on a heater. It's unsustainable. And I feel good because my bracket is fine. But do you think this is, uh, Gus, a front office issue for Goss City FC? Should they bring in an experienced MLS veteran like, say, an Andrew Wiebe or a Bobby Warshaw? Would that help improve things when it comes to overall knowledge? I'm not listening at all. <laughs> that one got me so good. I guess we'll just have to ha- monitor what happens in the offseason right now. Representatives for Goss City FC not oh. willing to speak on the matter. So instead, let's talk about some games that actually happened. David Goss, thank you for rolling with that. Uh, let's start with Orlando nil, Columbus 2. I'm going to say if you watch the highlights of this one, which is how I started this, uh, they do a good job of making this seem pretty balanced, pretty open, especially since it goes to extra time. 
Joe, I'm not going to lie. I then saw your note about this game and went back and watched uh, at like two times speed. Again, thank you, Joe, for teaching me that. It does feel more like this was a deserved win for Columbus. How say you? I love every time you give me credit for that because because yeah, I did point you towards the Google Chrome thing that allows you to fast forward. It just sounds like I I, I told you how like the concept of fast forwarding on a television works, and yeah. I'm re- I'm really into that. Kinda. Uh, like it is okay. This is how dumb I am. Like truth is that like I am very much a like one track mind that I do a thing a certain way until someone is like that doesn't make sense, and I'm like, does it not make sense? No. What does make sense? This. Well, then I'll do it that way. And seeing Joe, like being like, Joe, the players on your screen are so much faster than the players on my screen. How are you watching these games so Just fast? better athletes. It was a, a groundbreaking like, ah, oh, yes, fast forward. Yes, yes, yes. So yes, Joe, you did sort of break my brain there and made my life easier simultaneously. Yeah, I only watch soccer games played by Olympic sprinters. So that is actually <laughs> what it was. It had nothing to do with fast forward. It's a good call. It's I think call. your point, Taylor, about this game seeming more open and a little bit more back and forth from the highlights is fair. So to lay the groundwork here, Columbus win. This is the first of the two Eastern Conference semifinal matches that we had over the weekend. This game was on Saturday. Columbus win this match 2-0 in extra time. They advance to the Eastern Conference final, which will be played against FC Cincinnati. Great game. Rivalry. It's going to be awesome. I am legitimately pumped for that game on Saturday. To lay the foundation here, the crew were the better team. Like, they played the better game. They had more chances. They had the better chances. That being said... Orlando had their moments. Like, they had the best chance to begin this game with Ivan Angulo streaking in behind the back line for Columbus. That happened a couple of times. They had their moments to sort of jump out and really cause problems. It's the 13th minute where that, that you know, high-quality chance comes, and then Angulo gets another one in the 20th minute. Columbus have their own sprinkled in, right? Columbus have a nice one from Matan in the 14th minute. So it is back and forth early on to a certain extent. And then Orlando dropped their intensity. They dropped their line of confrontation a little bit after 15 minutes or so. And Columbus legitimately controlled the rest of of that match away from home, which is a hard thing to do. In an Orlando atmosphere, I've talked to players that is generally like really irritating for all of these guys. They don't enjoy going to Orlando to play because the atmosphere is strong at Exploria. So credit to Columbus for doing really what I, I thought they would do, what they've done all year long, which is come in and smother teams regardless of whether they're playing home or away. But it is an even larger credit to them that after the game settled a little bit, it was pretty much just one-way traffic in Orlando and some of their high-quality players that they do have in this team, even though it's not perfect, and we'll go on to talk about maybe some of the things that they need to change going forward, it is a credit to Wilfred Nance's squad that they controlled this game so much after the opening stages. In terms of the draft, Joe, you picked uh, Columbus with your second pick, so Goss, you were sort of forced to take Orlando uh, with that context in mind, do you feel like they did you proud enough for a team that you were forced to take under your wing? No. This was like <laughs> the one team that I was fine with losing at this stage of the playoffs because they had, a, at this point, over three playoff games, presented nothing to be like interesting or fun to watch or had any attempt to try and win playoff games. That like, seems like over, a problem. Yeah, over the course of three playoff games, two against Nashville and one here against Columbus, and Part of that is like game states when playing Nashville, which is a knock on Nashville as well and what they present to the field. Orlando didn't really have ideas or any sort of like risk or bravery to try and win games and create things. I thought there was some good ideas in this game from Orlando of how they tried to line up and and counter some of the things that Columbus does well and, and Columbus does poorly. But as the ball got rolled out, like you could credit Wilfred Nance, Columbus played Columbus. Like they did the things they do. And Orlando decided that everything in the regular season was irrelevant 
to what they accomplished and that they were just going to try and hang on and scrap their way to a result. Well, do you think, David, that this was a massively different approach from Orlando? I mean, shape-wise, it wasn't, right? We can cross that one off the list. It was basically the same look that they've gone for for a, a lot of this season in terms of the players and the spots that those players are in. Do you think tactically this was that different from what Perea went to in the regular season? In home games, they played a higher line of confrontation and they were and they tried to connect more on the ball, more passes, trying to open the game up, get their fullbacks higher up the field. Where in this game, it was deeper line of confrontation, so sitting deeper and then trying to hit and transition immediately off the one or the first or second pass. So in away games over the course of the season, that's how they played. In home games, I thought there was a bit more of an attempt to get into the final third, force the team into a low block, and try and break them down. They didn't yeah. want to be exposed at all in those moments. So they never did that. They did that a little bit against Nashville at times, especially in the first game. Um, they never did it against Columbus. And I, again, a lot of that's credit to Columbus and what they're capable of. But a lot of it to me is intent from Orlando. And I think when you see the game end, that they go down a man in extra time, and then they start creating chances because Columbus has defensive frailties. And if you put pressure on them and force them to make decisions, win 50-50s, and defend 1v1, they will make mistakes. You walk away being like, where was that? And I think that's what I have said about Oscar Perea's teams a lot. And I've been in the building with FC Dallas fans when they walked away from a playoff loss saying, why was the last 15 minutes better than the first 75 every single time we play in a playoff game? Why is that when we start trying to score? And it felt that way with Orlando in this one. It is, I think, Goss, you're right to point this out. It is a credit to Columbus, though, all of this, ultimately, because they are a team that makes it extremely difficult for you in whatever decision you make, right? Some of the questions for Orlando coming into this game over the weekend was, okay, does it make sense for them to sit deep and compress space and try to make it difficult for Columbus, a team that wants the ball, to try to make it difficult for the crew to break them down? That's sort of option one in the major tactical pathways fork in the road that you have the other option is you sort of go for broke and try to open up the game and punish the fact that the crew are not very good at controlling their own box they don't have fantastic individual 1v1 defenders and they do push numbers forward they do take risks which leaves space for you going the other way if you try to open up those are the two macro choices the thing is they both have downsides how many blocks have we seen the crew play through this year a bunch they are the best team in major league soccer at having the ball which is you know, great as a defensive mechanism more than anything else, but they take it to the next level in a way that no other team in MLS does. They create chances when they have the ball. That is a really difficult thing to do in global soccer at any level, and the crew do it better than anyone in MLS and maybe anybody on this continent. So the crew can break through your block, and we saw that in this game against Orlando. The other side of this is the crew also can beat you in a firefight. You know, we talk about maybe it makes sense for Orlando to open up and play, Atlanta United literally just tried to do that, and I know they're missing Amada for the first game, and that would have changed the calculus. But in, in the last game, where it is a bit more open, it's in Columbus, so there's an edge there for the crew, of course, but Columbus win that game 4-2. to two. Like, it, it is not easy. It's, it's almost an impossible situation for whoever's playing the crew because the best teams in the world, the best teams at any level right around the world, go, and what they do is they put defenses, they put opposing managers and players into situations where there is no good choice. And that is exactly what the crew did to Orlando. I don't think they had an option to really go out there and impose themselves. I don't think they had an option really to sit back and sit deep. That's why I picked the crew is because I thought coming into this game, they were just straight up the better team, personnel-wise, tactically, whatever it is. And I think that showed on Saturday. Um, I have more questions about Columbus uh, and what comes next, but we'll get to that when we talk about their 
conference final MLS playoff semifinal. It gets confusing to me. Uh, opponents in a little bit. Me too. I did just want to note, uh, Cucho Hernandez showing how to score a goal when you have an open goal was, was a good moment for me. Uh, he get, they get the ball basically with Orlando pushing everybody forward, including Gaese, the goalkeeper. Hernandez is able to get past him pretty easily. And then from a good 45 yards out or so, uh, puts it in the back of the net. And I think so often players go for as much power as they can. They try to get a ton of loft behind it. And this was just a, a sort of like driven instep of a yeah. pass almost. And I love that he just, he basically passed it in from 45 yards out. Got enough power behind it, but I think it bounces like twice on the way. Uh, but I think that is the best way to get a goal in that situation rather than hit it as hard as you can and probably hit it wide. Yes. Yeah, it's well done from, from Cujo Hernandez. Not great from Gaese, who's in a tough spot, right? They're pushing forward. Yeah. But he gets stuck in no man's land and, and sort of looks like can't decide whether he should go and really put in a tackle on Cucho and then just ends up getting rounded it, in yeah. the center circle and it just is a calamity of errors from there. It looked like a kicker trying to stop the returner when, <laughs> yeah, when, when exactly. they've broken through and it's just like, you gotta do something, but no one's really expecting you to do that much in that situation and Gaese did not do that much. Uh, so, credit will, to Cucho for that goal. I will say on the um, winning Columbus goal, I think Gaese touches it back into the box. Right? Aiden Morris wins the ball back on the counter press, gets the end line, puts the cross in, and I'm pretty sure Gaese's right hand gets a touch to it, which directs it back across the six into Christian Ramirez's path where he puts it in. Um, Gaese is Peruvian international. He has won a lot of games for Orlando, but he is better under fire where he's getting more consistent work than sort of stepping up in big moments. I do not think he's a player that you replace. He has tried to leave in the past, and I don't think he has found the offers he expects in other leagues but it goes to sort of the issue with defending deep of like at some point someone's going to make a mistake most likely it'll be Schlegel red card so that happened and then after that the chances are it would be Gaese and I think there was a slight mistake on that one and it opens up the space for Columbus now Columbus should have scored already over the course of the run of play and one of the fun things about this team is like Christian Ramirez was in the team for a while and they were a lethal front three. And then they bring in Diego Rossi and they move things around. And Matan has played well. And Ramirez has sort of been pushed back to the bench. But they have four legitimate attacking options in three spots that they can trust. Where I don't know that Orlando had one in this game over the course of the game that they felt super confident about. Joe, did you did you see anything from Aiden Morris in this game that made you feel like you owe him an apology? Or yes, not Joe. Him, yes. Or- were there any other uh, performers for Columbus that you enjoyed? For no, 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 no. Don't give him an out, Taylor. <laughs> Joe, talk to us about the performance of Aiden Morris in an MLS Cup playoff game against Wilder Cartagena, Peruvian starting international, and Cesar Araujo, U22 international acquisition. I really, first of all, I will not be apologizing to Aiden Morris because I have nothing to apologize for. I've not been rude or unkind I to Aiden Morris. I to Canada, the whole I'm, country. I'm pretty <laughs> sure you said Canada can have him because he's not that good. I feel well, like it was something along those lines. Right, maybe, maybe, that is, maybe that is a little unkind. <laughs> Time stamp. <laughs> I, I have nothing to say about Aiden Morris. He put in the exact performance that you expect him to, to have in a game like this. 2020 MLS Cup is his breakout, and what does he do in that game? He defends like a dog, right? He is everywhere making challenges. He's looking like the Tyler. Adams air 
in that game back in 2020. And he did a lot of that same stuff in this game. Aiden Morris defensively has been very, very strong. And I think some of his reactions and his counterpressing have, have improved this year. And he makes that first goal. Like the, the crew are such a good counterpressing team. And I've talked about that before. I'll talk about it again. That is a very real part of their game. And they can't do that at this level without Aiden Morris. So that's that's the first part. Shoot. Oh, the, the other thing I was going to say that I didn't like, Goss, about uh, this is unrelated to Aiden Morris in any way. But the, the framing of players, I, I talked about. <laughs> no, I, I did it. I did it long enough on Aiden Morris. I, I took the bait and I swallowed it. You're welcome. The, uh, the, the whole discussion that we had the other day about not just needing MLS players to make rosters and turn them into contenders, like needing experience inside of MLS. You obviously need good MLS players who have experience and that can add value. I, I feel kind of similarly about citing players as fill-in-the-blank international. Like, Wilder Cartagena, just because he's a Peruvian international doesn't mean that He's an incredible player, right? I don't think he's a bad number six necessarily, but Will Trapp was a U.S. international for a good amount of time. Like blanketing decisions that national team coaches make and at times taking, this is not a shot at Cartagena. I, I honestly haven't seen him much with Peru, but taking the decisions they make and just sort of roping them into our evaluations of players is is not great and is not something that I, I think like builds a coherent argument. So anyway, I'm rejecting the whole premise. So Aiden Morris, nothing has changed. I hope you have a good career. So, Joe, I completely agree with you, except for in the context of the conversation was, is Aiden Morris an international player? We're talking about Aiden Morris playing someone... for the crew against Orlando City So, right So, if Aiden Morris plays in Copa America next year and the U.S. draws Peru, I could or Canada, I could confidently say, I think Aiden Morris is capable of being on the field with those players, right? Go for it. So that's where that context helps if, in if that If that's exact an argument moment. that you feel the need to make at some point in time, I will not stand in your way, David. Go for it. Um, can we okay. can we do one beat? Taylor, I know we got to move on. I, I, can we do one beat on Orlando and sort of what Please. comes next for them? Okay. My thought, and David, I want to hear your, your perspective on this. I think there's more work to be done with this squad maybe than most other folks do. Good team. I think they have decent bones through midfield. Robin Janssen is incredible defensively, and he was excellent in this game, despite Rodrigo Schlegel doing everything he could to not play an entire 90 minutes, and he did not at the end of the day. I think they need help at center back. I think the question about what happens with Facundo Torres is big, and, and do they really actually like Martino Ojeda? Clearly not enough to get him on the field for a full season's worth of minutes. And then the question is, is Duncan Maguire going to regress, which seems possible? Or do you need to go out and find a striker that you really, really like to challenge him? And then you look at the number 10 spot as well, because they've not had a pure chance creator in this team for years now. David, if you're making these decisions, where do you start with Orlando City in the winter? I would start at center back because that's the strength of the team should be, which is right. from the two defensive midfielders back to the goalkeeper. That should be the strengths of this team. Schlegel is not a starting center back in Major League Soccer, whether it's in or out of possession. So it doesn't matter what game model or what you push going forward or who the new coach is, which I don't think you mentioned in all of that, which yeah, is that Oscar yeah. Preya. Off the field questions too, for sure. Right. Oscar Preya and Luis Muzi, who is the sporting director, both of their contracts are up right now. So they have to decide if they're the people they're bringing back. I would start at center back for them and secure that. If I could get a sale for Facundo Torres that flipped that money, I would do it yeah, because same. I don't believe he is a player you can build your team around. And the money they spent on him is for a player that you have to build your entire team around. And if you can get a team and I don't think it would be wrong for a European team to say, oh, if we bring him in on the right wing, we have enough talent. He's going to be dangerous. Right. I sort of think of like Miguel Almiron. Newcastle was never going to build their team around him, but he's quality piece to have in a group. 
and can be a game changer with other talent around him. I think Facundo Torres is capable of that. I would move him so that I could reuse that money on a number 10 that I build the whole group around. And if I did that, I would feel fine going into the year with Duncan McGuire and veteran piece around him that I think could carry some minutes or they believe in Ramiro Enrique after seeing him for a year. Either way, if you massively improved the attacking positions around him and you assume that Martino Heda gets a little bit better and can fill in some of what Facundo Torres does for you, I think it would be fine for Orlando to start a season that way. But what we're talking about is keeping the level. We're not talking about Orlando wants to win Supporter Shield and be MLS Cup favorites. I'm talking about like being around where they are, which was second in the East, but underlying numbers say that they should regress closer towards a play-in team. Push up those it, glasses, David. Wow. So it, it, they're the Joseph Lowry's of MLS. Everyone knows <laughs> the underlying numbers are soft. So that's what I'm talking about in making all those moves. And I think you could do all of that within a budget of you bring in a center back that probably hits at TAM. You flip the Facundo Torres money into a probably more experienced number 10 that you can build your group around. All of that probably fits within the budget they already are. If they want to increase things, you add way more expenditure. I also think that's where you maybe step away from Oscar Pereja. I don't think Pereja is a, is a ceiling lower. Like, I don't think he takes talent and makes it worse. I don't think he's had overwhelming talent throughout his time in Major League Soccer as head coach, both in Colorado, Dallas, and here. So I don't know that it's necessary. But if I was going to look, if I was the Wilf family, which would be awesome because I'd be loaded and I'd be doing whatever I want right now. But I'd, of course, be on this show because that's what I want to do. Yeah. Um, and I, that's what I, if I said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to spend Shakiri money on a number 10 and I'm going to find a Javinko or whatever type of signing that is or my own Nico Ladero, whatever it is. And I'm going to want to be a CONCACAF Champions Cup contender. I want to be Supporter Shield contender and I want to win MLS Cup. Then I think there's a space to say, is Oscar Breha the right guy for that team? Yep. I think all those are valid questions. The only other thing that's only sort of related that I'll add in is I'm not sure how the fullbacks escaped me in my list of things that need reviewing. Orlando have gotten very, very little out of their fullbacks, and it seems like there's not a ton of clarity on who should be in those spots, whether it should be one of the academy guys or not. That is another area where they clearly don't need a ton of production from those spots, but like the best teams in MLS do get something from those players. All right. So that is Orlando... Discussed. I think we've got a little more Columbus still to be discussed when we talk about their match against Cincinnati, who we're going to talk about next. First, a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. 
Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. We are continuing to talk about some MLS playoff results, including FC Cincinnati's 1-0 win over Philadelphia Union, which wasn't at all surprising or controversial and was totally fine. Uh, Joe, was this another game in which it was pretty evenly balanced, or do you feel like one team separated on the evening? Not really. This one felt that even to me, I had resigned myself to the fact that this was going to the worst part of soccer games, which is extra time, the 30 minutes where nothing ever really tends to happen. And then it didn't. And at first, I was a little bit grateful that something had happened, right? This game needed a moment of quality, needed a moment where someone broke through to give us at least some meat. And then immediately, I was not happy at how it happened because it stirred up a whole refereeing controversy around, was Ian Murphy, FC Cincinnati center back Ian Murphy, on or offside? Uh, that's a whole convo. I'm going to let Goss walk us through that because I kind of did some of it yesterday. But this game felt dead even to me to the point where if Philly had a couple of their guys or Cincinnati had a couple of their guys that were missing. No Gleznet still for, for the Union in this game. Kai Wagner suspended. Matt Miazga was suspended in this game for Cincinnati. And no, no Bodo for them in midfield because he's still dealing with an injury. So neither team at full strength. If one was, I think that would have been the deciding factor. But instead, we got to have a whole ref controversy instead. Is that the most important takeaway, the ref controversy, or is it more important that we learn that this is the game that told us that Joe Lowry is David Goss's MLS side piece, who he won't talk about publicly? Um, I would go with the second. I would go with mm-hmm. the second to fill in the background for listeners. I already gave David a hard time about this, which I feel like I've done a lot of on this show. David, I do appreciate. <laughs> I feel that. like I, honestly, I feel like I've kind of set you up and then leaned Maybe back. Maybe this is why I don't name backwards. drop you, Joe, because <laughs> <laughs> we're not really friends. Well, no, just just go listen oh. to Extra Time. If you decide oh. to listen, there's a moment oh. where Goss said he was texting someone about something, and he was texting me but didn't feel like we were close enough to, to drop my name, and that's just that's just how it is, I guess, you know? We move. We move on. Now, my, uh, my, my immediate assumption is that it's because he gleaned information from that conversation no. that he didn't want to then <laughs> no. give credit for. That, Goss that's is what the I'm one who made happened. the astute point about yeah, like an I'm observation about the, the union. And I, so Goss's point was they were sort of missing another piece to get them out on the break in this game, right? They mm-hmm. were missing another piece who could help them build from deeper areas. And Kai Wagner is probably the best chance creator in this whole squad, and he's suspended for allegedly racial insults towards Bobby Wood. So he's not a part of this this game, nor should he have been. But Goss's point was the union needed more of those pieces to help build on the attack. And I probably just like tap back or said K or something along those lines. So I didn't really deserve to be mentioned. <laughs> I just gave Goss a hard time over text, and now it's snowballed into this thing that we're talking about for five minutes. There are times when I text Joe some like theory or idea I have that I'm very excited about, and Joe will give me a like thumbs up, interesting, and I'm just sort of like, all right, all right, I see, I see what we're doing here. All right, let's talk through this goal then for a moment. Uh, Cincinnati with a free kick from far out. Uh, Lucho Costa takes it. He plays it laterally to Barreal, carries it forward a little bit, plays into the box, headed down by Murphy, finished by Mosqueda. The main question was Murphy offside when Barreal played the ball. Offside modeling on Twitter suggests yes, but about by about three inches, and even then makes the point that it's not 100% certain because we don't really get the best angle. Gosh, can you quickly explain, I think, not even what should have happened here, what did happen here, but more so why things played out the way they did, uh, specifically with the way MLS and VAR do offside decisions? So to start with, I think we've all become familiar over the last two World Cups in Australia, New Zealand, and Qatar of semi-automated offside, which is you have specific cameras that are in the stadium that create that fake, you know, ghost of a person image. There are, I believe it's 12 cameras put inside the stadium that register, I don't know, 50 different beats per minute 
of what's going on and where every player's body part is using the end of the hands, end of the foot. And then there's a trigger inside the ball that's specially made so that you can find the point of contact that you're looking for to determine offside. So that's one option of how things can be done and obviously simplifies things for VAR. And then I think many of us are familiar with the Premier League where they have the ability to put a line onto the field to help the VAR adjust and figure out where the offside line is. That line is manually placed, though. That is not automated like it is at World Cups. So those are two ways you can go about it. MLS does not do either of those things. MLS is purely just I based off the VAR. The issue, I think, is less the method and more the infrastructure. It's the amount of cameras. So when you look at this play, and Ian Murphy looks obviously offside, the camera angle you're looking at is from behind the play. You are not looking down the line, and there is no better camera angle around that play where the Premier League, I believe, has five cameras within the 18 yard from the 18 yard line to the end line to be able to find every angle that they can to determine what's going on inside the box. And they have Hawkeye on top of that, right on top of the goal line, which adds a ton of cameras that take a bunch of minuscule shots every millisecond that you can go through to sort of find the point. Because what you're doing in this, and I think it's soccer photographic, whatever, the Twitter handle who... He does a great job and was the one who determined that it's probably three inches. His offside issue mo- with this... Offside modeling, I think, is the, the handle there. There you go. His issue in this moment, working on it for days, reminder, not in the moment has a minute to figure it out as VAR, is there is no camera angle that shows exactly where Julian Carranza, the Philadelphia Union defender's body is, when the ball is struck because Ian Murphy is blocking him. And there isn't a better camera angle. And there is no camera angle straight down the line of where they are. So that's sort of where this will all fall. And I think we're going to talk about it with Houston as well. There is a lack of infrastructure with the amount of cameras in the stadium to perfect a call like this. Therefore, you go to referee's judgment. Referee makes the call on the field. And then is there a clear and obvious error to that? And without having any better views, you cannot state from what you are seeing based on the angles that it's clear and obvious wrong. Mm-hmm. I would say to people who are like, no, I'm 100% sure I see it right. Watch some of the highlights of VAR in the Premier League where the line doesn't even look straight to you mm-hmm. because of the angle you are looking at. I didn't really understand this until I started doing instant replay, filling in for Weeby a bit more, and then talking with the referees of like how much the angle can change the way you view the play. I would agree with that. I think the angle always gets confusing. I think fundamentally, if you are a Philly fan or you do not like FC Cincinnati, you probably feel like this was the wrong decision. Which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's sports and that's the way it should be. And that is a fair reality, right? If I walked away from that game, I'd say I got screwed. Fair. Okay. But I mean, in in the end, I feel like, would you say the Houston situation that we're going to talk about was a more egregious mistake or incident than this one? No, I think they're almost equal in my mind. Cool. There we go. All right. Well, we'll talk about that one shortly. First, we should talk a little more about this game as it played out. Uh, Lucho Acosta, Joe, involved, but not as involved. I think .3 expected assists. He only creates one chance. Uh, 34-43 passing. Feels like he did not have as much of an impact, and I focus on him because the commentators focused on him. Sure. He, uh, He is now MLS MVP. Much of the pregame show was about how he could have an MVP performance in this game. This could be a statement game for him. I feel like he's had many statement games, but whatever. Uh, 
And so maybe that buildup is why I focused in on him a little bit more as not having the strongest of performances. Do you feel like Philly did something specific to limit him? Or was it just sort of overall he wasn't as key in what Cincinnati were able to do on the evening? Not anything super specific or at least not anything different than what we expect from the union, right? This is what we know they're going to do in games under Jim Curtin. At this point, they play their 4-4-2 diamond, sort of like a a high mid block where they press a decent amount, but not all out Red Bull style. And they stack numbers centrally and try to make it really difficult for the opposing playmaker to get on the ball and do much. And they've had a lot of success with that system and the players have generally executed it well over the last several years. Nothing really was all that different from what Pat Noonan and his coaching staff and Lucho Acosta on the field should have expected in this game. But Taylor, I love that you bring up Acosta because number one, it's fair to focus on him. This guy just won MVP yesterday as it, as it was announced by Major League Soccer. And that's not really something that anybody can, can truly gripe about. So he wins MVP. He is the best player on the Cincinnati team. He is the most influential player in between the boxes. So he's a guy worth focusing on. In the playoffs, he had some success early on in the series against the Red Bulls, but he has not had the same impact on games in the postseason as he did during the regular season. I'll have the exact numbers out for backheel tomorrow, but he's averaging 10, 15 touches, fewer touches per 90 minutes in the playoffs than he did in the regular season. Like your, your observation, Taylor, is correct, and not just for this game, but in general for the postseason so far, he has not looked like an MVP in the way that Dennis Boanga has looked like an MVP or in the way that Cucho Hernandez has looked like an MVP. So it is it is a concern for Cincinnati. His impact, ultimately you trust the talent and you trust his ability to get in and actually change games. But I think it's a fair observation from this game. Lucho Acosta didn't give them enough to go out there and, and break through Philly in a way that wasn't confusing and late in the match. I would add to that, and I agree with what both of you are saying. I think one of the things on the raw numbers for Lucho is they have played two very specific opponents back to back in the playoffs where there is no soccer really being played. And there is no pause and chill where it feels like Cucho and Buanga, their teams have played the way they've played all season in their postseason matchup. So what I'm saying is I'm very curious to see what Cincinnati looks like against Columbus. And I'm curious if they are struggling with the pressure, if they are fatigued after a long season or if they just happen to play the Red Bulls and Philly in their first two rounds. I would say in this game, I thought it was interesting. Over the course of the first half, Lucha started to float out wide right to try and find space. And Santi Arias was not available for this game. And Ray Gaddis and Alvis Powell ended up having to fill in along the right side at right wing back and right center back. Lucho likes to play on the left. He feels more comfortable on his left. He likes to connect with Barrial. I think losing Arias set up a situation where Philly could push more numbers to defend Cincinnati's left side because there wasn't really a threat down Cincinnati's right wing. And so Lucho tried to fix that by going over and finding the game, but then didn't have anyone to connect with and kind of got lost and ended up just having to fill space in terms of counter-pressing there. So I, I don't think a lot of it went Cincinnati's way, but when you're missing the players they're missing, it doesn't matter. It was like all about survival and they ended up doing that. Is that expected to change between now and that conference final, uh, the players they're missing? So Nwobodo trained the day before the game. I have a feeling some of that was like media based of like, no, no, he's out there. So make sure you say he's out there so that Philly has to consider what it'll look like if he's out there. He will have been off now when you come out of the Red Bull game for like for over 21 days, I think. So if he can play he will probably be in. Like, if it's an injury that's less than a month, he will be in. With Miazga, 
He is suspended for the game because of yellow card accumulation. There is an open investigation over whether or not something else could happen based off what happened after the game at Red Bull Arena with someone trying to, whether it was break into the referees organization, whatever it is. I don't remember exactly. The investigation has not been announced what happened. So like we are currently in a moment where Miazga is available. That could change if the investigation is closed and something's announced between now and the game. I don't know if that will happen. So for now, yeah, they'll be back. But I don't know what it'll look like on Saturday. And then... As briefly as you all care to, to make it, uh, we've done postmortems on pretty much every team that's been eliminated as we've been doing these shows. Do either of you have thoughts on what next for the union? Uh, listeners, Joe is pointing at Goss, which I'm guessing means, uh, Goss, you're welcome to go first, and then we can move on. Our understanding is it'll be somewhat of a change in regard. Alejandro Bedoya, who has been part of this project longer than Ernst Tanner, and like we are going to be a high-pressing Philly team has been told he won't be coming back. Jim Curtin said that he thought that was wrong post game. And pretty much every single starter on the roster reposted that on social media. So could that change? Maybe. Can I, can I ask did from what you know, guys did, did uh, Ura uh, echo that sentiment? Yeah. Because I watched two different moments in this game when Ura either shoots when he shouldn't have or doesn't get on the end of a cross. And you can see Bedoya off in the distance losing his absolute mind. The shot was the big one. Bedoya (laughs) had made the run to be a finisher and then was like, started yelling, are you kidding me? But Mikel Ura is one of the people who posted it. There we go. On Instagram, including Andre Blake, who will be the captain of this team probably going forward. Jakob Glesnes has made statements himself, who will be a core of this team. Um, so that could change. The assumption is Julian Carranza will be sold at this point in his contract. Now is when you're going to get the most value. He was off and on this season compared to last year. He still put up good numbers. He is still a special player. They gave up nothing for him. So everything they make from selling him will just be pure value. And this is a club that has stated they want to operate off of that. Jack McGlynn's really the only youth player that they could sell to start to make money like they did with Aronson and McKenzie. So most likely it'll be Carranza right now, maybe McGlynn in the summer after an Olympics performance, or maybe it'll be McGlynn in the offseason. But either way, it feels like there's going to be some shifts in this team. There will probably be a spine that is similar, but especially in the attacking half, it's going to be different. Jim Curtin is like pretty open about the fact that it sounds like he feels like they've hit their ceiling. They are not one of the higher spending teams. They have competed. They've been in, what, two semifinals this year already when you talk about Leagues Cup and CONCACAF Champions League. They made the final last year in MLS Cup. They've made a semifinal already in in CONCACAF Champions League, a couple Eastern Conference finals. They don't have as much high-end talent as these other teams to win. Curtin's pretty open about that, but he also signed a contract extension. So it feels like Curtin will be back, and this is sort of just an internal war trying to push Ernst Tanner or ownership just to open up a little bit more. I'd be shocked if that happened, but there's announcements around a fourth DP and all these other things. Philly might be forced to open the spending a little bit more to try and compete with the teams around them. Yeah, all I just very, very quickly, I wasn't trying to deflect on Goss. I just want to get him involved in the combo. No, yeah. You know, got to go play a couple one touch passes now and then. They need, Philly need to sort out the Bedoya situation. 
But I, I don't think that's the most meaningful on-field thing for them. And Gus, you talked about a bunch of other stuff too, right? So I, I will go to, they need two attacking difference makers. They need to figure out what's going on with Carranza. And, and even if he doesn't leave, they're not getting enough production out of that. Really, what is a front three for them with Carranza, Ura, and Gazdog? They need one more attacking difference maker through the middle. And then they need a, a new difference maker at left back. If, if Kai Wagner is your star across your back line, he is your best chance creator, and he is, then you need someone who can bring you some of that. And I guess it doesn't have to be at left back, right? You could get a serviceable option there. And if Bedoya goes or if McGlynn goes, then you go out and get someone who can pull the strings from central areas, drifting out onto the wing at times as the union use those shuttlers in wider areas. But they need more top-end talent, and I think that's very, very clear. I think it was clear in this game. And it's not really in the squad right now. So Orange Tanner's got to go look for it somewhere else. And how many more Aronson siblings are coming through the pipeline? Five or six? 12,006. <laughs> Medford, New Jersey, baby. <laughs> that was said with such little enthusiasm. Um, let's do, do one more game, then we'll take another break. Let's talk Houston SKC. Joe, thus far in the show, we've talked about two very tightly contested games in which it was difficult to know who was going to win. At least with this game, we get note checks notes. It's the exact same thing. Yes. Yes, it is. There's no doubt <laughs> about that. To the point where I think you have the same note for FC, for the Cincy win as you do Why are we not starting with Houston. this is the game I picked correct? This was my number <laughs> one pick, and I picked it correct, and I want credit for that. Taylor, restart your intro right. to the Houston but, SKC game. Before you do that, Taylor, can we decide how many pity points we want to give David? I was thinking three. You can go higher or lower. Yeah, I, I had the second pick in the draft. And I hit on my first. That's because you lost the first round of the playoffs as well. It was merit based. I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let's do the thing that everybody loves that we do uh, when a young and plucky upstart finally gets a point. Joe, let's talk about what went wrong for you in this prediction. Why (laughs) do you feel like you weren't able to get the win here? No, uh, sincerely, what were your general impressions from this game? Then we'll celebrate David Goss getting uh, that one big, big point in this in this one. Yeah, legitimately another tight game in this one. I, uh, I didn't see a whole lot separating these two teams. I know there was a lot of, there has been a lot of waxing poetic about the Dynamo because they play front soccer. They didn't create a ton of chances in this game. Their best chance comes off of a set piece. Their possession still is not consistently a weapon that turns into to actual chance creation in the way that it does for Columbus. So I still am not all the way there on this Dynamo team, but I have a ton of love for the run that they're on right now and the turnaround that they've had from last year to this year. 13th in the West to a Western Conference final is awesome, and they have taken full advantage of the draw that they had in the bracket based off of the finishing in the regular season and of the fact that the Western Conference is weak this year. And they have done exactly what they should do, which is go out there and make this run. So I have a lot of time for the Dynamo, but still, they didn't come out there and and stamp their authority on this game. They had 64% possession by the end of the match. They had 71% in the first half, and they didn't have a a ton to show for it other than the goal, which is a lovely goal from Franco Escobar. Hector Herrera takes the set piece. Escobar rises up, finishes it. Escobar has quietly been one of the most important players for the Dynamo this year, playing in that fluid left-sided defense role. He's awesome. Sporting Kansas City didn't look great in this game, but they were still in it, and they're probably one handball call going the other way on basically a 50-50 call from scoring a penalty kick and this game going 1-1 into extra time and then something happening in penalty kicks. So again, this has kind of been the theme and is just the whole thing in Major League Soccer. Not a lot separating these two teams. Joe, just to clarify for a moment. So I feel like there's a world in which Houston getting a first-half goal controlling possession, continuing to control possession in the second half would be a sort of dominating performance in which they see out a 1-0 win. 
would you argue that maybe those numbers aren't as critical and the idea that if that handball is given, suddenly it's a very different narrative? Is that a big part of why this wasn't more of a comprehensive victory for you? Well, I just think this this game was played very, very tightly. Like neither team had a ton of super clear cut chances. There were chances in this game, but neither team was like truly out creating the other. On balance, the Dynamo had a little bit better success in that regard. I'm not denying that. But the fact that if this handball call had been given, where Sviachenko, and I mentioned this at the end of yesterday's show, Grand Rutherford's favorite soccer player of all time, honorary Scott Eric Sviachenko, when the ball hits his arm, when he's on the goal line from a Daniel Shalloway shot, you sort of think that could have had a real impact on this game because goals are massive in this sport. There aren't very many scored in any game. And the Dynamo hadn't showed a true ability to go out there and create chances at will. And SKC were still sort of hanging around in this game. And it happens right after the goal. So... Yeah, this one to me felt poised on a knife's edge and it turned out in the Dynamo's favor. And as a neutral, they play fun soccer and I'm pumped to see them go take on LAFC. Gus, I I believe they were your number one pick when we did the draft. Uh, So you are vindicated in this selection. Well done. Credit to you. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to hit the picks that I have. And like if the format's against me, then it is what it is, right? Like all I can do is control myself. Um, I would add to the conversation, I would say... um, the knock on Houston is their inability to score the second goal and put KC away. That's where they didn't dominate the game because as Joe said, they didn't create a ton of chances with the possession. And then they did not possess the game out. And that's almost the part that frustrated me more about their performance was like over the course of the first half, the game shifted from really final third high field possession to more SKC was able to work from a low block to a middle block. And Houston starts knocking it around the midfield line. But Houston has to do that to control the game, right? They can't defend for long stretches of time in their low block. So for them, that's like a defensive tactic is to have the ball move it around while you find your space. They didn't do that over the last 15, 20 minutes. And I get that the game gets hectic and SKC's throwing numbers forward. But like you are an elite possession team in this league. And if you are going to be able to play the way you play at the highest level and win everything, you have to be able to see games out at some point with the ball at your foot or score that second goal. So I think that part to me is the part where Houston left a little bit on the table in this game. I would say on the handball, because you asked about in comparison to the Philly one, in a fake arbitrary world of the soccer gods, SKC deserved it less than Philly. Like, KC was not in the game at all. And off the kickoff from Houston's goal, Polito gets a breakaway. DP striker doesn't finish it. And then Shallowy comes in for that rebound and puts it on goal. And Sviachenko blocks it with his arm. Whether it was an illegal position or not is the debate. SKC didn't deserve a goal at that moment. They didn't deserve to be in the game. They had not shown up for the game. And I don't really think they did at any point over the course of the 90 minutes. I don't think I disagree with that. I felt like it was, I thought Johnny Russell had moments, especially in the first half. I think as the game went on, there wasn't that rise in sharpness that you would expect. Like you can forgive the first 10 to 15 minutes. There are nerves. Maybe you're trying to get a feel for the game, but I feel like as it went on, I do think Houston didn't really do the the job of controlling the game and seeing it out or just comprehensively shutting things down. But I feel like sporting Kansas city for their part, never, 
never really made it that difficult and never made it to the point where the goalkeeper had to stand on its head or the defense was making heroic blocks. There's some good chances, there's some good shots, but ultimately I do think it just wasn't enough from Sporting Kansas City. It feels like we're all sort of leaning towards Houston win this game, but are destined to lose to LAFC. Uh, we'll talk about them and that matchup here in a little bit. Uh, one more postmodem, if we could, on uh, postmodem. I think I just said on uh, Sporting Kansas City. That's Post Malone's cousin. Postmodem. Uh, <laughs> any any things you think Sporting Kansas City needs to do in this one, Joe Lowry specifically? Boom. All right, Taylor's playing the ball to me. I I think this team needs to get younger. On average, age weighted by minutes played this year, they're the second oldest team in Major League Soccer, only after Nashville. And and stylistically. Sporting Kansas City play a game where they're in a lot more 1v1s all over the field, both attacking and defending, where youth and having the energy to go out there and cover that ground and to make those runs is more important for what they do stylistically than it is for a team like Nashville. So they are one of the oldest teams in Major League Soccer. They've committed to some of these older players continuing. Alan Polito getting a new contract towards the end of the season is a great example of that at 32 years old. But their center backs are both on the wrong side of 30. They both struggle with mobility, and that limits this team's ability to go out there and play the game that they want to play. So if I'm SKC, I'm generally looking for quality young talent in the attacking areas out wide. It feels like SKC have been looking for the next winger to come in and take over from Johnny Russell and and to compliment Daniel Shalloway or for Shalloway to take the next step for years now. And it has never happened. They have still not found that player. It ends up being Kyrie Shelton going out there and, and trying to do his best. So you can improve out wide, get younger and better in those areas, at least in terms of your depth. And you can certainly improve along the back line. I don't think the midfield needs a ton of attention right now, but the middle of the back line and now left back is a question with Ndembe being out with an ACL long term. Tim LeBoyd, who fills in as 29, has not really looked like the highest level player either. So those are the areas of MSKC that I'm looking to specifically get younger, deeper, and better at going into 2024. David, anything to add on that one? Or no, I think the Ndebe one is big because you talked about getting younger and the spot that KC did it this year was Jake Davis elevating as a starting right back, who I think has been phenomenal. And that's an academy piece. That's your starting right back for as long as you can keep him. And then in Dembe, I thought, really elevated his game over the course of the season. Obviously scores the goal in St. Louis. That's the smallest part of it. Like he was a, a difference maker for them. That's good young players that you would hope could carry a bunch of minutes. Most likely, Ndembe is now out for the full season, tearing his ACL at this point of the year. So now you have to rework some of that. Um, and I think center back. It, it, we've been talking about it since Eichelpara got traded to Minnesota. Like This is a team that very rarely has the third best center back on the field in an MLS game, let alone having a pairing that they can trust. I think Rosero found his footing and, and had a good year. Fontas at times I've understood can fit the game model, but he just, he can't defend one V one and he can't cover space. So if you want your left back to be able to push forward at all, which is what Ndebe was doing at good moments for them, you don't trust him back there. And I, I think part of what we saw against Houston was like SKC didn't feel like they could defend competently against Houston and push some numbers forward. They needed to be in a tight block with their lines close together to be able to protect their back line, and that's not a way to be successful at the highest level, and they have the attacking talent to not have to play that way. So that's it comes down to the back line again. It's like the hundredth time we're saying this. I'd be shocked if KC signed a mar- a marginal upgrade or a massive upgrade at that position because they seem incapable of doing it, but they will probably try once again. 
All right. Uh, so more on Houston in a little bit. First, we're going to take one more break back soon to round out uh, this round and then look ahead to the conference finals. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back, gentlemen. One more game still to be discussed. Joe, we talked about this one a little bit on the weekend review, but LAFC with a 1-0 win on the road at Seattle. We get a, a great goal from Buanga. We get a an incredible performance from Maxime Crapeau. Uh, watching it again, he really, really was just so calm, so reliable between the sticks. Uh, and I very much enjoyed what I saw from him. Uh, David Goss, what were your impressions from this one? Another tight 1-0 win. Who to thunk? It's just the change from LAFC, from who they were back in 2019, setting a points record, high possession, scoring a ton of goals, under Chirundolo from that to we will be playing like Orlando, like in this game, or we're going to play like Philly. Like they, well, maybe Philly less. They sat deep. They tried to hit direct, but they have this weapon in Buanga that makes it all possible for them. And it, it was a good matchup here of like Seattle struggles to break teams down. They don't create a ton of chances. Jordan Morris is not an elite finisher. So he had the one chance on the breakaway and LAFC, they don't care anymore. They want to win. Like, that's what they've restructured the team as. They've changed, I think, from, like, we want to develop and sell to let's bring in Chiellini. Let's bring in a Tillman who's sort of probably at his peak but can fill spots and minutes for us. Let's continue to roll out Carlos Vela uh, in moments when he's probably not capable of affecting the game anymore because it's enough to just get us over the line rather than setting a points record and being – a game changer of a club in MLS. And I think that's a fair assessment to make. Like you come in with all these grand ideas, you see how it's affected by other teams on the field who are there to beat you. And that's what happens. And you start to adjust over the course of time. And now they've got an opportunity to win a second MLS cup. So I think that was the first thing that really hit me is just like how different this club is and how special Denny's Boanga is. When you watch a game where you have an expectation and I always felt this way when I watched Aaron Robin play at his peak of like, you knew exactly what he was going to do and you couldn't stop it. And that makes me laugh out loud and have fun watching it. And LAFC to not have the ball at all for Buanga to have no touches. And then he picks up the ball where he does and he at full speed breaks away. And then the finish at the pace he does it at is top class. Yeah. And that's what makes him so good. It's just like, it's just fun to watch. I, I don't disagree. I agree with what you said there. I still, I keep watching that goal and thinking, Where's it is a great goal. Help? What is Seattle doing? Yeah. And, and, I, and I think all I can figure is that there's maybe a lack of awareness of where they are in relation to the goal or what the angle is. But I've seen that before where players just take the wrong pursuit angle and think they have it covered and don't. But 
it, it, I, I, I take that it was a great goal. I take that it was a great moment. I take how special of a player Boanga is. I just still think in that moment, I'm saying at least 30% of that is Seattle just deciding to sort of like go full AI defense in FIFA and track, but not really try to make a play. So I w- let me throw in a few things. One, I think Alex Roldan's caught up field in a moment where he's getting ready to break into the attack and help. Yeah, which, by design, yeah. Right, which was the entire conversation going into this game is Seattle needs Alex Roldan to be an attacker. Will that force Buanga to defend? Is that how you pin him back? How can Yaimar help? So they get stuck in a bad moment. It's also really the first time Christian Oliveira, who started as the right winger, has come over to the left side just to add another number and change the geometry a little. So Oliveira being there, I think, shades Yaimar away from the wing where Buanga is. And then the last piece is, to Buanga's credit, he's doing something players don't do. He's like increasing speed with the ball. So Jackson Reagan now is in a situation where it's like, in his short professional career... He's got his calculus of where that guy is, where the goal is, how much time he has, when the help comes, and Buanga breaks that. And I think all of the Seattle defenders, while watching video and having played against him before and talking about it, are stuck in a moment where they're like, oh, that's what's happening. Like, he's accelerating away. I probably should have come over and closed because he's the one player on the field who I need to. But all of that is different than what it is against pretty much every other player in the league. Joe, any thoughts on that goal on the overall performance from Buanga, or do you want to talk a little bit more about Maxime Cripo? Yeah, I want to talk about Cripo because we, we've talked about Buanga and he deserves a lot of the conversation. I think we've all kind of got it wrong, though. Cripo is the biggest star of this game. He is the biggest impact on this game. It's not Dennis Buanga. It's a great goal, but LAFC are, are not doing anything in this match without Maxime Cripo. Taylor, you tossed out the stat yesterday from FB Ref. He saved 2.3 goals more than expected in this game. And that's coming off of saving 1.5 goals more than expected in their last game against Vancouver before the international break coming into the new round of the postseason. He has been absurdly sharp for LAFC. The arc is incredible. The story is incredible. Breaks his leg in MLS Cup last year, comes back, reclaims the starting spot as the year goes on this season, and comes up massive in back-to-back playoff games and gets LAFC within one win in a home game of MLS Cup. Like he was the single most impactful player on the field on either side on Sunday. He deserves all the flowers. I don't know if he's going to be able to keep this up. I, I doubt at this level that he will put in another performance like this, that LEFC will always look back to his showing in this game against the team that has been the class of the Western Conference and in many ways, the class of Major League Soccer over the last X number of years now. They're going to look back and, and this will go down as one of the best individual playoff performances in LAFC history. Well done, Maxime. Uh, well done to you both for breaking this one down. Uh, I do have one more question. Uh, for a person who has uh, followed the season, but maybe not watched every single game, why does everyone hate Ted Uncle? Can we talk about that for a second? Because the Seattle fans after this one, feeling very, very aggrieved by the way he officiated this. I think feeling like yellow cards should have been produced earlier. Some of the time wasting could have been clamped down. That also feels sort of like par for the course, when it comes to complaints people have about officiating. But I will say, in trying to answer that question myself before before we started recording, there are at least 50 Reddit posts about Ted Uncle and protests and petitions to not have him officiate. So I'm wondering if either of you have thoughts one way or the other, or even if you don't, can shed some light on why he seems to be such a polarizing figure. 
Yeah, it's it's a total guess for me. I I genuinely do not pay attention to who the referees are, and most of the time don't I kind really of notice don't if they're doing a bad job or a good job. I'll say this at the risk of getting my MLS awards ballot revoked, which is not the end of the world, so I'm I'm okay with it. There's a referee of the year award each year. There's three referees that are nominated. I never have any idea how to pick. Like I don't understand how anyone in good conscience who already we don't understand enough about refereeing. Like if you ask the average soccer fan or a media member, myself included, to give you the ins and outs of how to referee a soccer game, they could not do it. I could not do it. It is an impossible task to vote for that person that I end up just kind of hitting and hoping on that one. Ted Uncle, I don't know if he was nominated for that this year or not, but the other part of this answer is just Seattle fans being angry, and there are lots of Seattle fans. <laughs> I can tell you Victor Rivas won it, so Ted Uncle didn't win it. I don't know if he was nominated or not because I don't remember. Uh, yeah, I think fans just get mad about yeah. refs and whatever. There's not a moment in this game that you could say was decided by. Like, coming out of two games in which they were 1-0 games and there were massive calls that either led to the goal or held off another goal, I, that I'm getting tweets from Seattle fans asking if it's the worst refereed playoff game I've ever seen <laughs> just shows you, like, the space we're operating in. And again, love that. If I'm a fan, I'm doing the same. I'm getting texts all Sunday of, Fans saying how the NFL screwed their team. And it's like, yeah, no, everyone thinks that. Every fan thinks every ref in every league is bad. That's just the reality. Maybe his name is easier to remember. And so people have fallen on that. Uh, I agree. I do hope he has an Uncle Ted to make it Ted Uncle's Uncle Ted. Uh, Yeah, Goss, I feel like those questions from Seattle fans and some of the responses I saw on Reddit and on Twitter – I'm guessing that question was posed to you as, is that the worst uh, officiating performance of all time or just one of the worst officiating performances of all time? I'm not sure there was much gray area in there. Uh, Joe, turning away from that conversation to a much more interesting topic, I would say, is the Seattle offseason rebuild. Do you think they are poised to have the most fascinating offseason of any team in MLS? Because I kind (sighs) of do. Wow. Off off the top of my head, probably, because it, this is a changing of the guard for Seattle, right? To yep. set the groundwork here, Nico Ladero, this was his last game at a Seattle Sounders jersey. Raul Ruiz Diaz also going to be gone. Those are not just two club legends. They're also well, two... Ruiz Diaz still has another year. Ruiz Diaz has another year. That's what oh, I keep reading really? from Sounders fans, that he's not done until 2024, which is and is pushing for an extension, I think. I think the all of the common... Consensus is he will be moved on, but at the same time has another year, so they got to figure that one out. Interesting. Okay, so that's not as cut and dry as I, I thought it was. Taylor, great catch on that. Either way, it is the right time for Nico Lodero to go and do the next thing, and it is the right time for Raul Ruiz Diaz to no longer be taking up a designated player spot for the Seattle Sounders. So those things are, are issues for the Sounders to go out there and solve. Albert Rusnak being their third DP and not playing like a designated player is also an issue. So we could reasonably be looking at at least two, if not three new designated players for this team next year. That's huge. Like this is a really, really difficult situation for the Sounders. That being said, their front office, even with Garth Lagaway going to Atlanta, the pieces that are in place there have historically done a good job of identifying talent. The Seattle's front office infrastructure has produced multiple impressive chief soccer officers from around the league. At least it seems that way. And they make generally good decisions. So they're still going to have to go out there and find though a number 10 of some kind, another attacking difference maker of some kind, probably a number nine. I, I think there's a lot of, of big choices that the Sounders have to make. And one other wrinkle I'll add to this because none of that is a, a, a unique observation, right? People are talking about this stuff. It's not easy to go out there and find good players to begin with. 
it's very, very difficult to go out there and find good players that fit with the attacking pieces that already exist in Seattle's core. Jordan Morris is not a super flexible player. Yes, he can play as a nine, he can play as a winger, but he kind of does the same thing. He's not a super well-rounded guy. He wants to run in behind. He generally likes to hug inside. He doesn't provide you with. And Christian Roldan is another like sort of weird player that's a little hard to pin down where he kind of does the same thing in every role, but he can play a bunch of different roles. It's not cut and dry of, okay, we just need to find players in these two spots and everybody else is going to be in their same roles. It's it's not so simple for a Roldan who's played in several spots and Morris who maybe is a nine in some games and when Rui Diaz isn't healthy and other times he's in a different spot. There's a lot of moving pieces and parts for Seattle and not just in that they need to go out there and find more talent. It's about how that talent fits with their very particular existing difference makers in that front line. That makes sense. Uh, thank you for that. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, running through it again, we've got uh, Lodero out of contract. Rusnak has a contract option, but that would extend him further into designated player status. Uh, Jao Paulo, I think, has an option. Uh, Eber has an option. Uh, Javier Arriaga has an option, and Stefan Fry is out of contract. So a lot of decisions to be made. I think Steph signed the extension. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he built a house with his own hands in Seattle. He's like 40. He's not of course going he did. anywhere. Of course he did. Yeah. Gus, two questions. Um, yeah. You mentioned earlier that uh, Facu Torres is not a player that you think is at the level that you build around if you're Orlando, that he is not quite at that caliber. Or style. Fair. Is that a similar situation with Rusnak, where he, he could be back, is a designated player, but maybe isn't doing the things that were expected? I saw a few different people pointing out that he was expected to maybe take over that Lodero role, hasn't really done that, maybe isn't the player that they need to build around as a designated player. I would say yes to your question, but I would say most of that conversation is probably wrong. Rusnak was brought in to just keep the wheels turning in that they knew that they were close to potentially winning a CCL. And last year, they didn't want to have to integrate a player who didn't understand what was going on. Like, they wanted a player like Rusnak, who had been in MLS, who had played in CCL before, who understood the challenges, without throwing too much of a wrench in the team in the beginning of a season when a CCL exists. I would be shocked if anyone from Seattle actually felt Rusnak was good enough to take over for Ladero, but... He is versatile, and I do slightly disagree with Joe, where I think Roldan and and Rusnak are versatile players, so it does actually open the door to making it easier to find a piece that can come in where Rusnak can play deeper. He's just a high-possession player, right? He always keeps the ball moving. He strikes cleanly, so you have to close him down a little from distance. He will not pick up the team apart, and he's not a guy who's going to create a ton of goals for you, but, like, he is a high-level player, and I think when you look at this league, he's fine in that spot because Jao Paulo's not a DP, and he plays at that level. And Jordan Morris and Christian Roldan are probably two of the better contracts in this league. So when you look at the attack in a salary cap sense, and you say, okay, of these four players, we've got one DP. This is the production we get. It's probably more than what other teams are getting from those spots. The problem with this team that fell was Lodero and Rui Diaz, their actual designated players, didn't perform anywhere near where the expectation was. So my guess will be they'll re-up Rusnak, probably maybe negotiate a new deal that's longer and off a DP if they want him to come off that. I think they have to re-sign Yaimar. I'm not 100% sure on that. I have to go back and check. And then a lot of the other pieces you said are massive pieces for this team going forward, but they have a strength. They are one of the top defensive teams in the league. So in terms of like getting better, let's say they brought in an Evander-like player, which is a massive expenditure, and they'd have to do that. 
they would be better off in helping that player fit in than Portland was with Evander over the course of this season where they had a leaky defense and didn't have a ton of attacking pieces that could sort of help him and guide him in while he was finding his feet. There we go. Uh, from the Sounder at Heart uh, site, uh, based off of players who be out of contract and have an option due, the Sounders can potentially free up 54% of their total salary spend, 52% of their salary cap space. So many different potential options, many potential additions to that team. Gus, one more question for you, and then Joe, I welcome your answer as well. Uh, I make this joke a fair amount, but in reading about the Sounders' options, it really felt applicable once again. If you had to bet, Gus, who is more likely to be a way too important piece for DC United next season, Nico Lodero or Raul Rui Diaz? Probably Raul Rui Diaz, yep. because he makes no <laughs> sense next to Venteke. I'm pretty sure DC traded like uh, 500000 in game for Brad Smith who was on Seattle and was like a fine player and then had to go out and acquire an international spot to put him in the team. So probably ended up giving up like 750 K in allocation for a guy who never really played for them and isn't really a starting player. So Rui Diaz says, Goss Lowry, you want to change it up with Ladero or you feel like Uh, you can say both if you want. I'll I'll say Ladero just because they do need a playmaker. Like Pirani was, was not the guy for them at all last year after he comes in from Brazil. So they need someone who can pull some of the strings. And if they like 30 minutes of Nico Lodero at a time, then I think this is the right move for them. Joe, do you have a good Lodero landing spot inside of MLS? I even because I've got 15. I know. I, I know I've you mentioned that. Philly earlier this week. I love There's a the lot Philly of one now. There's a lot of teams that could use him, right? I think him in an El Sino Philly role is kind of a, a fun thing. There's a lot of teams that could use him. The challenge is just Orlando? getting the right deal. And getting him in, in an okay place to play the role that you need him to play. I think Orlando would be tough because Pereira is a similar player. And I think what we came down to is like, if you want a guy to run the game in that temperature, it's tough when they're older to like be able to cover the ground and do all the things. I think like Joe mentioned, he's got to go to a team where it's like, we kind of weirdly have an open DP spot because we've overhit on a different spot. And we just need this talent right now to get over the line. Similar to what? Seattle did with Rusnak. So that's why I think Nashville's an obvious one of like the pretty much the team is fully set. They're clearly in a win now mode. He's a piece that gets you over the top. That's where Philly comes from as well. I maybe like a Charlotte falls into it because they don't know how to fix things and they don't know what else they're doing. Um, Plus he's already played on turf. So he might be more open to it than maybe another high level DP that they'd be looking for. But there are weird matches. Clearly if he's leaving Seattle, he doesn't, expect to be off a designated player contract otherwise he would just stay in seattle except and this is my final question on this one um if you are nico ladero uh who maybe you don't feel like you can play the entire david mls season Goss, you were talking about that and some of the physical demands of, of the position um and if we assume he has been compensated enough that money is not critical you might see where i'm going with this does Inter-Miami make sense to go there and be a bench option, but then also to be a, a critical player at times, to be a depth option, but also on a team that's going to uh, probably make a run? It feels like we're going to start seeing players go there, or maybe we already have, go there for less money, as we saw with the NBA, when you get sort of the big three and such. I wonder if Ladero could be one of those players. You both made faces, though you smelled something bad, so I don't know. I, I don't know. Inter-Miami, there's so many moving pieces and parts for Inter-Miami. Merlo's reporting earlier this week that they're trying to get rid of Dixon Arroyo in midfield, which makes sense because he's not, he's not good, good at soccer. 
That's um, such good MLS offseason fodder. Tom Barlow <laughs> trades and Dixon Arroyo rumors. That just gets my juices flowing. What a start. But, I mean, Inter Miami need help. They need more pieces. They need more players. If Nick Ladero wants to take a budget oh, cut boy. to go out there, he's got connections to Chris Henderson already. Taylor, I'm, I'm kind of here for it, to be honest. Here we go. There we go. All right. We're creating the Goss hot is not, stove. But that's okay. Uh, let's we, talk we make it conference work. finals for a moment. What would you say, Joe? Goss doesn't look like he's here for it still. No, um, but it doesn't matter. We don't need him. Yeah. It's okay. I think it was the big three thing and the lack of the Knicks ever getting anybody good no. that maybe made him sad. It was that there was no proof Nico Ladera wanted less money. Like he's leaving Fair. the place he's been for 10 plus years or whatever it is, eight years to make I'll, more money. To I'll say this now. More money. I'll say this now. I, I do not think Nico Ladera will be a DP next year. And Goss, it seems like you do. So then we can have a little. A little no, play. I don't think he'll be an MLS. Because oh, I don't think anyone will give him the contract. And I think he will go find the contract. Boom. Agreed. All right. I don't know. Cincinnati-Columbus, the Battle of Ohio. Uh, Joe, what are the keys to this game for... I'll let you go with Columbus and then Gossam coming to you for Cincinnati. Yeah, for, for Columbus, this is about how they can control the game both with and without the ball. They're playing away from home, yes, but we know what this team wants to do. They don't change for anyone, not in a macro way. So it's how they can control with possession and create chances with the ball. It's how they can try to punish Cincinnati's back three, which has been chopped and changed because of any number of different injuries and Matt Miazga doing Matt Miazga things. It's how Cucho Hernandez can try to manipulate Yerson Mosquera on the, the right side of their back line, dropping into space and just do Cucho Hernandez things. It's about how the counter press can go and smother Cincinnati and create chances, sort of these like little pseudo transitions where Cincinnati start to go forward, then they lose the ball because Columbus win it back from them, and then there's space to go into. And then it's about how they control Lucho Acosta and Aaron Bupenza and Brandon Vasquez. And the first two of those players have looked the much more dangerous of the three of this season when they've been on the field together for Cincinnati. It's been a not a great year for Brandon Vasquez overall, but it's how those players are controlled or not controlled by Columbus and how they counterpress. So those are the things that Wilfred Nance, I'm sure, is talking about in greater detail with his team and with his coaching staff. All of those things, I think, are absolutely massive for the crew. Ha, see what I did there? I didn't even mean to do that. I did it. Nailed it. <laughs> Proud of myself. Well done, sir. Uh, and Goss for FC Cincinnati? I think it starts with who's available. And so when you talk about this Cincinnati team, like I'm going to talk about them as if they're full. So I'm going to say Santi Arias plays. I'm going to say Nuboto plays. I'm going to say Miazga plays. I don't know if that's true. And that will obviously change everything. But if that is the case, that those players are in the team, it's about finding one, what are your pressing triggers? How high are you going to play up the field? It's pretty much a situation of like, can you make the game not the thing Joe said? Can you make it choppy for both teams? Can you make it a ton of counter pressing, a ton of deflected passes, a ton of 50-50s and loose balls to find a hole in this Columbus team, which I think they'll present themselves if the game goes out of their style. Like, I think there's enough pieces in this Columbus team that will try and overpass under pressure, who will try and find some control where there shouldn't be and create a mistake that opens the game up for you if you're able to impose that on them, which isn't a guarantee. And I think what we saw from Orlando in the few moments they tried, and I think what we've seen from most teams is the biggest weakness of this Columbus team is the defending in the channels. It's the two wide center backs, quote unquote, who are both naturally fullbacks, playing inside of two wingbacks who one is a winger and the other one, in Mo Farsi, will now be challenged with dealing with Alvaro Barrial, who is a top 10 chance creator in Major League Soccer. And I think Cincinnati is set up pretty well to find one of the two forwards 
in one of the channels, the other one making a run off him, or Lucho Acosta being able to find space, especially in that left channel. Then he starts to find Barrial, Bupenza making runs, and Brandon Vasquez is that aerial option if they need it to challenge a Camacho and Schulte where Columbus really struggles. Orlando was never able to make that a part of the game. Camacho was like dominant in that game. And then Schulte is a good shot stopper, but struggles to control his box. So I think for Cincinnati, it's about deciding like how much can you open up the game? How much can you stretch your line to try and create chaos higher up the field and find opportunities? And then when you're sitting in and defending, how quickly can you go and transition into the danger areas that you predetermine? They are there. Like this is a Columbus team that gives up goals, but they also score them. This is also a team that oddly dominates teams that mirror them with fullbacks, with wingbacks, sorry, in a back five. I think Columbus is like undefeated against teams that play a back five. Now, Cincinnati just naturally plays that way. So they're not adjusting for it. There is a big gap, though, between Gaddis and Alvis Powell on the field and Miazga and Santiarias on the field. If the over-under for this game is one and a half goals total over. scored, are you over taking the two. over or the under? Yeah. yeah. I'm choosing okay. to believe. Okay. Choosing to believe. I like it. All right. Let's talk LAFC Houston. Joe, which one other team do you think is most excited to go to Ohio in December for the final? Uh, probably Houston. I feel like they've got a little <laughs> bit more of the edge to them where they're sort of you know happy to, happy to be where they are and ready to conquer whatever's in front of them. LAFC, a little bit more glitz, a little more glamour, maybe less comfortable going away from their environment. This game could be fun. It could be really, really fun. Houston played good soccer. Yeah, yeah. Taylor liked that it one a lot. Could be fun. Uh, <laughs> Houston played good soccer. LAFC have a lot of talent. The, the reason why I, I qualify that is I can envision a game very easily where the Dynamo sit in. That's what they do much more often when they're playing away from home. It's, you know, 55 or something like that percent possession at home in Houston. And then they drop below 50 on the road. So we yeah. know that we're going to see more of them in their 4-4-2 mid block. We know that they're going to try to compress space because, frankly, you'd be foolish not to against this LAFC team because LAFC struggle. And Gossi got into this earlier. They struggle when they have the ball, like they have transitioned into being a transition heavy team. So I can see a pattern where LAFC are at home. They have a bunch of the ball in their 4-3-3 shape. They're struggling to break through a relatively compact Houston team. And then it just kind of ends up looking like a stalemate. Now, a couple of reasons why that won't happen and, and why I am still very, very excited about this game is one, because the Dynamo still have that, you know, pass, pass, pass mentality to them, even when they're on the road. When you play with Hector Herrera, Artur at the base of your midfield and Coco Carasquilla, who's been hit and miss in the postseason. But when you have those players and Franco Escobar and else, in their game, I yeah. saw him miss a lot in that game. Yeah, he's, he's not been great in the playoffs. When you have those players, you're going to play that way regardless, right? When you have the ball, you're going to do some fun stuff, which can then open up the game, and then we get more of the Bowanga runs and all that stuff. The other thing that has me excited about this game is the, the rotation that the Sounders use, where in this game against LAFC, and they've done it all year long, where they keep Nuhu back as a left-sided center back. He defends as a fullback, becomes a center back in possession. They then push Alex Roldan high and wide at right wing back, basically moving from right back up to the wing. And they shift Yaimar as the center back on that side over. They shift into this back three shape and push the fullback on that side forward. LAFC are going to have the exact same team to go up against in the Houston Dynamo. They use the exact same rotation where they push Griffin Dorsey at right back, up high and wide on the right side. They shift the center back over. They bring Franco Escobar deeper inside. It's the exact same thing. So if LAFC can take advantage of this yet again, they're going to get Buwanga in space. They're going to get him running downhill in that gap between right-sided center back and right-sided wing back. 
And that clearly has the potential to be fun and useful for LAFC and put the Dynamo in some weird spots. So lots of intrigue still in this game, a game with teams that I, I do enjoy watching. I, I think this is going to be a fun one, but those are some of the things I'm thinking about going into Saturday. Gus, anything for you that you're paying attention to, that you're keeping an eye on, that you want to see in this one? No, I think the rotation's really well said. Houston didn't do it as much in the last game. I think one of the things that threw SKC off is that they actually pushed Escobar with Dorsey for the first 20 minutes to have more players higher up the field. But I'd be shocked if they did that in LA on the road. Like Joe said, this is one of the teams that the home and away split is as massive as anyone. But reminder, they went and won the U.S. Open Cup at Miami. So they have experience going on the road. They have experience in big moments like this this season. And I thought that Miami game was one of the better balanced games they played. But they had more possession in that first half. They took the game. They scored goals. And then they were more comfortably able to see it out with some possession and sitting a little bit deeper. Um, The one thing that I think Houston has that Seattle didn't have is that Houston can get more bodies in the box on crosses. So for most of this game, for the, the the previous round, Seattle had just Jordan Morris in the box. They whipped in crosses. It was useless. One of the things that Houston's really good at is Ache Ache making late runs, Coco Karaskia getting inside the box, bringing Franco Escobar across the field, or Griffin Dorsey to be another option in the box. It causes more chaos for LAFC. I think there are deficiencies in the LAFC backline if you can target them. They were able to protect them for the most part against Seattle outside of the one or two chances where Jordan Morris got the breakaway because they sat in in cleaner lines. I think Houston, while they struggle to finish the chances, has an ability to create a more, more styles of chances against this LAFC team if they choose to open up the game and attack. And I think they will. I think when you come down to it, like over the course of the next week, I'm pretty sure Houston's going to have a conversation of like, we have nothing to lose. This is what got us here. This is who we are. Are they good enough to make it win? I'm not sure. Are they organized enough or experienced enough as a group over the course of time for it to hit perfectly? I'm not sure, right? They might be a year away from being ready for this to work on the road in a conference finals under the big stage, but... I think Ben Olsen and that group are going to come to like, let's just go out there and and try and do the thing we do well and see if it works. All right. So we've got Cincinnati Columbus, 6 p.m. on Saturday, LAFC Houston, 9.30 p.m. Eastern, also on Saturday. One final thing to do would be the draft. Uh, You're each going to get to pick one team. Joe, you won the last round. I will. I will allow you to uh, defer or accept. Do you want to make will, the first? I will pick? defer. No, as no, no, the no, charitable no, 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 individual. No. I will get promoted. Keep dropping me <laughs> down. I'm going to keep fighting <laughs> back. LAFC. Now I have been handed. All right, so we're, we're going to give Goss the first pick. I've been handed a card by HQ. They feel like I was unkind to David Goss in the introduction to this one. They want to give him a chance, gentlemen. A win. In, in this game is worth three points. So, Goss, I believe you're down six points total. If you win both of these... No, no, no total. You'll We're be doing equal. by round. Hey, don't talk to me. Talk to HQ, man. Uh, <laughs> they, so, six points available, three points per game. Goss, which one are you most I, confident in predicting? Sorry, first of all, to be clear, I don't understand what this point system is or where it came from. And second of all... Goss just said that he was giving me the first pick. Do I still have the first pick? Do yeah, I not you have, have the, the first fir- pick? Okay. I think we're revolting against you, Taylor. I think, I think I'm we're really rebelling. excited. Also, what is HQ? I don't understand the generic <laughs> HQ thing. You're talking you about the league HQ, office? bro. It's you don't need to know. Heard it. it doesn't concern you. Uh, this guy's it's, heard it's, of HQ. it's the shadow organization this that, is that runs all things. classic MCU universe stuff. 
Yeah, you can see the card I was given was also uh, a which which thing is different card for my daughter's flashcard set. Uh, it was the closest <laughs> thing I had on hand. Uh, Joe, I'm really interested in which one you're going to pick here, because I think thus far you have gone with Cincinnati whenever given the opportunity. But I know you've got love for Columbus. It feels like you both were sort of leaning towards LAFC, maybe being the more likely to get out of this one. Joe, who are you feeling most confident in? Yeah, unfortunately for Dynamo fans, the obvious pick is LAFC. Um, I don't know if listeners caught me saying that into the mic a couple of times during that whole uh, melee there. (laughs) LAFC is the pick. I'd be shocked. I haven't looked at the lines, but I'd be shocked if they weren't the biggest favorites of these two uh, home teams. They have the talent advantage. They have the home field advantage. The Dynamo, I think, are are just performing a little bit above where reasonably they kind of should be right now. I'm too scared to pick between Hell is Real, so I'm making Goss do that, and I will be picking LAFC. All right. So LAFC for Joe means Houston for God. Houston have been Houston have been one of your teams, David. I feel like they've got you out of the first round. You got some points there. They they got you here. So here we are. Uh, Who are you taking between Cincinnati and Columbus? I can say because of this moment that hell is real because this is hell trying (laughs) to decide between these two teams. Um, I'm going to lean with Cincinnati. Obviously. Tuesday is not the best time to make this decision with we don't know who will be available for Cincinnati. <laughs> yeah, and how it will go down. Yeah, they I'm, have hearing, the home field. I'm hearing a lot of preemptive excuse making yeah. is what I'm hearing. They have the home field advantage. <laughs> um, I think their style fits against Columbus. I think their style fits actually more comfortably against Columbus than it has against the two teams they've played already. Columbus hasn't had to face that specifically so far. And then you just go to like the individuals. of like Brandon Vasquez is just better than all of the forwards Columbus has faced so far in the playoffs. Well, I guess not Yakumakis, but he was sort of isolated for times. Bupenza as well. Like, there's a reason they won the Supporters' Shield. So I'm going to say at home in that whole situation. In saying that, I would be stoked if Columbus won. I think when we walk away from this season, as well as Columbus can do, is a positive for Major League Soccer. It's a copycat league. And Columbus has won, done different things, but not in a dumb way. Looking at you, Chicago Fire, and at times Toronto FC. And they've done things in which they've trusted the value of this league in moments and trusted individuals that are just good at what they do and not based off flashy resume. But Wilfred Nante plays good soccer. He cares about teams and the players that play under him. To go out and acquire him from Montreal is, I hope, a game changer in this league of like that's how teams value coaches start to recruit coaches start to build around them and everything Tim Bezbachenko has built from the top down his front office what they do they've made it to two MLS next pro finals back to back Taha Brun starting for the U17 national team like they've built everything from the bottom up and so for them to succeed with this specific group would be awesome to see the number of times Taha Habrun has been mentioned on this show is, is shocking. He's a legend. <laughs> um, uh, Gus, you just made a very compelling argument for why we should be pulling for Columbus, and yet you've gone FC Cincinnati. Would you like to change your your No, it's your a business choice? decision. Okay. All right. It's not emotional. It's just business. Yeah. It's just business for David Sports Goss. are business. All right. Well, we'll see what happens in those two games. We'll be back next week uh, to talk about them and much, much more. But Joe Lowry, thank you so much for spending well over an hour talking about uh, MLS playoffs with me today. Anytime, Taylor. And I I mean that in a weirdly sincere way. Thanks, buddy. Uh, David Goss, the same to you. Thank you. That seemed less sincere. Listeners, (laughs) thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you again very soon. (laughs) 